Hello, friends. Welcome to the Christchurch Port Orange Midweek Podcast, where we deep dive into the scriptures we examined from the previous Sunday morning without the constraint of time, as well as discuss questions and topics of interest from members of our Christchurch family. I'm Pastor Jesse Jarvis, your host. Let's dive in. Welcome back, everybody. We're excited to be with you. I'm joined here today by Bill Mayer, our Worship and Tech Director. Hey, guys. Welcome back. We're glad to be here. We are going to have a fun conversation today, although I will tell you, our engagement in terms of emails, questions, uh, pieces of paper slipped to me after sermons is going down, which is making me wonder how many people are falling behind in their Bible reading and so they don't have any questions. So I don't know how that's going. So I'd love to get some feedback from you, even if the feedback is, I can't keep up, I'm still back in Isaiah, I haven't finished Deuteronomy, whatever whatever it is, um, some feedback would be great. Uh, thank you to those of you who are continuing to follow along. Uh, I can see some people, if I glance over at the um, Uversion Bible app and see as people finish reading for whatever particular day. So I do know there's a bunch of people who are staying up with the reading, but uh, we're getting less and less um, questions, which that's the most fun for us is getting to hear uh, what it is that you're interested in, the questions you're having. It also is really encouraging uh, for me as the pastor and preacher to see the insights that you're gaining through this read through the Bible in six months. So we're binging the Bible, and I'm glad for those of you who are joining with us. And then if you're not reading with us, but you're interested in the podcast uh, and it's thought-provoking to you, that's great also. Oh, and I was going to say, if if you're confused, let us know what you're confused about. Yeah. You know, there's no shame in that. There's a lot of, a lot of the prophecy that we're reading through is very confusing. Yeah. It's very confusing, and there's a great deal of disagreement about the, the meaning of in interpretation, particularly when it comes to the predictive elements, because obviously we are an eschatological people, right? So we are people of the next age. It's one of the distinctions of being a Jesus follower is that you are a person of hope and that hope is tied to a person, but specifically the return of that person, the return of Christ. And so there's a lot of mystery surrounding what that will look like and what that experience will be like and when it will happen. So we don't know those things, but we do know that that particular event is coming and that is the thing that we live in expectation of. And so we ought to really work hard to have a well-informed eschatology. And, um, you know, in kind of American evangelicalism, there's kind of like a virtue that's given to not being too dogmatic about your eschatology. Because, you know, we don't, we're not certain. And so, uh, you know, I used to say, I'm a pan-millennialist. It'll all pan out. And so you don't really worry about it. And it's kind of, it's a little bit of a cop-out in the one sense because it, it makes it so we don't have to really think about it. Um, but ultimately, whatever your um, lens is by which you read the whole Bible is what determines your uh, interpretation of the passages that are related to the end times. And so I mention this because we're in the book of Ezekiel, which is the Old Testament's revelation. In fact, you can't read Ezekiel um, without thinking about revelation. And you really can't understand the revelation of John without understanding Ezekiel and the connections between the two of those. I made a very, very slight connection this past Sunday um, during the Mother's Day sermon because we jumped from Ezekiel chapter 19 over to Revelation chapter 12 uh, with the mother connection. So who is your mother? A lioness in chapter 19. Who is your mother? A vine, a, a vineyard. And then, of course, we talked about the woman who gave birth and was chased by the dragon and being swept away on eagle's wings. And so there's a there's a motherhood connection there. But that was one of the smallest connective tissues in Ezekiel. So you look at Ezekiel and John in their persons, um, so you have Ezekiel, who is a priest during the the first round of deportation and leading up to the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. He had this vision, and this vision was on his 30th birthday, which would have been the, the age of his maturity and readiness to enter the priesthood. But instead of entering the priesthood in the temple in Jerusalem, now he is by the river Kabar in uh, Chaldea or Babylon. So he's in the wrong place at the wrong time. And what do we have with John? John the seer. He is this disciple of Jesus, the youngest of the disciples of Jesus. Um, he has seen the things of the fulfillment, but now he's in the spirit on the Lord's day and has a vision. And a lot of the, the terminologies that you're going to see, um, the shining nature of the one seated on the throne in the opening chapters of Ezekiel and the, the revelation of Jesus Christ, they're very similar. 
the the one like an ancient of days. These these pictures are very deeply connected. And then what happens? Ezekiel opens with Ezekiel near a foreign river, and Ezekiel ends in chapter forty seven near the end of the book with a river flowing out of this uh, newly described, much larger scale temple um, presence of God among his people. And it flows out um, out the east and the doors always facing the east. This comes up again and again and again. Um, you know, the Adam and Eve were pushed out of Eden towards the east. And so there's this picture of God's now bringing people back in the way that they came out. Um, there's the same connective tissue with um, this happening in Chaldea. You'll remember, where did Abraham come from? Ur of the Chaldeans. And so he's a Babylonian, Iraqi sun worshiper who is uh, called by God and made a great nation. And now in the greatness of this nation at the apex of its, of its history, and now because of its idolatry, its unbelief, the opposite, the inverse of Abraham's faith is now present. And the punishment then is deportation from the land of promise. And where do they end up? Right back where this whole thing started in Chaldea. And the, the connection to Babylon and the Tower of Babel and the, the human spirit and the battle of, of Gog and Magog and the great battle of Armageddon, all of these things are deeply connected. The river that flows from the tree of life that's on both sides of the river and its fruit is for the healing of the nations, like this is, this is tied together purposefully. It's tied together literarily, but it's also a vision that both of these two men experienced and it was an, an unveiling and an opening of not only the space in which God exhibits in the supernatural spiritual realm, but also into the purposes of God. And so both Ezekiel and Revelation call you to understand the eternal purpose of God now and what that means for you, even though you may be an exile in a foreign land and not in the presence of God or where you're made to belong. Whether or not you are a prisoner exiled to the Isle of Patmos and yet still in the spirit on the Lord's day. And this is like the Christian experience is that in this world we are continually exiles until this great return comes and God dwells with the people that he has made his own. And so part of the way this eternal purpose of God gets worked out is through a miracle of God dwelling not just with us but in us. And then that river of life flowing out of us and reshaping the world all around us. I love the imagery at the end of Ezekiel where the water is like a trickle flowing out of under the door, essentially, in the threshold of this new temple. And it flows to the east, but then quickly flows to the south. And if you're familiar with the geography of Jerusalem, you'll know that that goes into the Dead Sea Valley. And that which is currently dead is now st- teeming with life, great number of fish and, and plants all along the shore. And everywhere that that river flows, now there's life. And so there's a physical connection describing, hey, God's going to do a thing where his presence is so strong that there's going to be this, this source of uh, life, this river that's going to flow out of the place where God dwells with man, which is on the inside of us. This is John's gospel. A time is coming when we'll neither worship in this city or on this mountain, but God is in search of worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Jesus said, out of your own hearts will well up rivers of living water. And like this is the picture again and again and again. And so God's God's forecasting the reshaping of humanity and the reshaping of creation. And so Ezekiel does this and the revelation does this. And the message is for both the Hebrew exile, the, the Israelite exile, and the Christian follower through the early parts of the Christian church and really in all ages. And so one of the things that John does, um, and, and obviously both of these two books have an eschatological component because they forecast all the way to the end, but they don't reach all the way to the end. And so as you're reading the latter chapters of Ezekiel, you should be thinking about, okay, God's going to bring a new Jerusalem and there's going to be a new city and there's going to be a new temple and it's expansively larger than it's ever been before. And so all of those chapters that go on and on and on describing scales of things in uh, unit measures that we're not used to using, whether it's stadia or um, spans or I don't know, different translations use different um, cubits, use different measurements. We don't immediately think of this, but the, the grandeur of the scale is quantitatively larger than the scale of the current temple. And so this is a picture of, okay, God's done a big thing. And now the earth is experiencing the outflowing of blessing. There's going to be a judgment, yes, and that's going to come against Israel. We see that in the latter chapters of of, um, Ezekiel in the 30s. 
But along with that judgment comes the miraculous move of God to do what humanity truly needs. And that's not to have a special nation that is the light to the rest of the nations, because that obviously was incapable of working. This is what Paul talks about in Galatians and in Romans, that God did what the law, weakened by the sinful flesh, was unable to do. And so he did a miracle, a miracle by, uh, of grace by faith, that we receive by faith, and that happens on the inside of us. This is what Ezekiel forecasts in chapter 36. He's going to take out your dead heart, and he's going to put in a living heart. He's going to put his own spirit within you. This is what Jeremiah talked about in chapter 31, that he was going to, he was going to uh, do a new thing, that God, God was going to, we were going to know God. He was going to write his law on the inside of us. And so this is going to happen on the inside of the followers of God by faith, and it's going to flow out of us, and it's going to impact the world around us. Now, that brings us back to, okay, well, what is our eschatological um, end times theology, and how do we then read that out of and also into books like Ezekiel and Revelation? So there's so much connective tissue between these two books. We could take them apart um, kind of piece by piece. That would be an interesting and long, detailed podcast, but I'll leave that to you to read them side by side. Maybe you've never read them um, in proximity to each other, so there's a challenge for you after we kind of get through our Bible reading, we're going to get to Revelation. You probably won't remember as much about Ezekiel as you would like to be able to remember. And so maybe after you finish Revelation, go right back and read Ezekiel one more time. Uh, it's really a great book to listen to also because um, it's going to move at a pace that doesn't hang you up. And the things that you miss will just go right past you and you can try to stay with it. It's also really helpful with all books, especially long ones and difficult ones like Ezekiel is to have an outline, understanding how the book is composed, what section you're in, um, what is it in halves, is it, what, how are these things building together, um, how am I supposed to read it. When we get to Revelation, I will give you my interpretation of uh, Revelation in the most cohesive, coherent way that it can be read. It's not linear, it is not literal, it is figurative, and it is cyclical. And when you read it that way, it, it comes to life in a major way. So I'm excited to get to that conversation. Uh, but I want to get through uh, the Ezekiel conversation. Wait, so for those who are listening, we just we just mentioned the outline. Where would you get an outline mm. to help you go through Ezekiel? So uh, I used to get them from commentaries. So anytime you get it, I would, st I would study or preach from a book of the Bible. And in my um, history as a preacher, I used to just do a book at a time. And then I would do series. The older I've gotten and the more experienced I've gotten as a human, as a leader, and as a preacher the more comfortable I am um, preaching thematically. Part, part of that is I, I have a much greater understanding of what the, all the different places the Bible speaks to a specific topic. I've had a lot of human life experience and I know the people I'm trying to preach to. And so I do a lot more um, topical preaching than I used to. And I think it's a good practice for early new preachers to anchor yourselves in a book, deep dive and study that particular book hang out in the context of that particular book, understand how that book is functioning, and how, to, and then work, do all your work to apply it. And the longer you do that, the more you become um, familiar with the whole corpus of the Bible, and the more you can kind of move away and preach thematically. You'll also be reaching into different parts of the scriptures all the time, no matter, no matter what. So I spent the most amount of my time in my early preaching years preaching a book at a time. It's a very valuable way of teaching the Bible, but it can be a little hard too. Like if you're gonna do a 38-week um, series on Ezekiel. That's a long time to be in Ezekiel. And, um, but it's a great, it's a great way to do it. So I would get a commentary and in a commentary, the author who is a, you know, typically holds multiple PhDs and fluent in Hebrew and apocalyptic literature and, uh, Aramaic and, uh, you know, history, Babylonian history, and knows all this kind of archeological stuff and all this sociological stuff, um, has done the work of, of, uh, organizing the book and putting an outline. So you can get them there. Now we have the internet also, which is another great tool for preachers everywhere um, because now you have access, um, immediate access to lots of perspectives and lots of connections. It's, it takes me way less time to prepare a sermon than it used to just simply because I have the access to information at my fingertips at lightning speed. The downside of that is you have to actually have a strong interpretive method and key so that you have the discernment to recognize what's the garbage that's available to you at lightning speed and what's the gold that's available to you at lightning speed. So that's not something that um, is in the Google search bar. Everything at the top is gold and everything at the bottom is garbage. Sometimes it's quite the inverse. So I'm not saying that you should uh, be able to use the internet without discernment, but um, it does take me less time. Um, a lot of times too, like if you don't have like an immediate connection, it takes less time just to look something up, right? So if, if I don't remember the 
chapter and verse of a particular passage that I'm thinking of, I can type in my you know jumbled paraphrase of it into Google and Google will tell me exactly where that chapter and verse is and it takes me right there. So it speeds up the process. But you can Google just an outline of the book of Ezekiel and you'll get a handful of them. And like anything, if you're a new student of the Bible and you don't have a really strong interpretive method that's already functioning for you, then just get multiple outlines so that you have something to compare and contrast them to. Okay, why would this author break the book down in this way? Why does this one do it this way? How are all three of these exactly the same? And what literary components would lead us to this uh, to this um, perspective? Just basic stuff. Same thing goes for English translations. You don't know any Greek, you don't know any Hebrew, just get four, three or four English translations and you know a, a dynamic kind of thought for thought translation and a more wooden word for word translation and just look to see how they're different and just the difference will alert you to the place where you need to ask the right question uh, or may in, you know give you some insight into the, the meaning. You can also find a trusted commentary but that that's in the form of a study Bible. That's really what a study Bible is. It's just a running commentary for whoever the contributors are. Um, but you want to know who those contributors are and what their interpretive method is. And so they're going to be different. And so um, those are the things you want to kind of understand. I, I enjoy the English Standard Version. Uh, it is very much a balance between a, a, a readable, dynamic, thought-for-thought thought while honoring the plenary inspiration of the original autographs. And, and uh, that's good work that's done there. The, um, the NRSV is a great Bible also, and I have a study Bible that they put out that's the, um, the cultural background study Bible. And so it includes a lot of data that you wouldn't get in a typical study Bible. So I like that one if you're into paper things. Um, and then, of course, all this stuff is available uh, in version. So NASB is a good wooden translation. And I love the way they italicize words that aren't present in the text but are added in English to make it make sense so you know that that's not there. Because sometimes your whole idea of a passage hangs on a word that doesn't exist. <laughs> And so it doesn't happen all the time, but it's nice to know when it is happening. Um, so those are all just little Bible tools. Now, I say all that. Those are for our rigorous students. Um, one of my favorite uh, resources as of late has been Bible Project. And they do uh, videos that are overviews of each book. And I would align like 80 to 90% with their theological understanding. Obviously, it's Jesus-centered, and so we have that in common. Um, but the uh, this... John Collins and Tim Mackey are really good at presenting the major positions of a particular interpretive method in an unbiased way. I mean, if you listen carefully, you can tell where they fall, but they are very respectful of people who disagree with them. Uh, the Ezekiel video is actually a great, there's actually two videos because it's a long book, but they get to the end of Ezekiel and a lot of those ending chapters um, have to do with the new Jerusalem, which is a theme also in Revelation. And so there's all this... Um, all this recording of the sizes of things. And that, to the average reader, that where that's uninteresting. But as you get deeper and you're trying to build your eschatology, your, your understanding of an expectation of the end times, you kind of want to know everywhere the Bible talks about what's going to happen in the future. And so the two kind of going streams of thought and interpretive methods is that this Ezekiel prophecy is actually prophesying a physical, literal temple, a third temple. Right now there is no temple in Jerusalem, the Temple Mount has a mosque on it. And so there are people who eschatologically are expecting a physical return of Christ and a physical rebuilding of the temple at the scale of Ezekiel's vision. And then there are those who do not read that temple as being uh, physical and literal, but figurative and an expression of God dwelling with his people in a way that's much larger scale than before. And obviously, you can't have a literal stream becoming a river in from a temple threshold and filling up the Dead Sea and changing the whole landscape from a trickle. And so, there, you know, the, the, it, it's hard to you end up drawing arbitrary lines between what is literal and what is figurative with some of that um, approach to the scriptures. But they do a really good job of respectfully honoring the tradition and expectations of both um, camps. So I like those videos too, and I believe they have a video or multiple videos for each book of the Bible, and they provide not only a great breakdown of the literary composition of the books, but then also a visual representation of that that makes it easier for people like me to hang on to it. So you can check out um, Bible Project and any of their videos from any of their books of the Bible. And for a book like Ezekiel that's really confusing and difficult, to, for them to be able to break it down for you and go, hey, listen, if you read chapters 1 to 11, this is a big break right here. And what is said in 11 is central to the book. And then it gets picked up later 
in chapter 36 and chapter 37 in the Valley of Dry Bones and God's uh, God's uh, movement and hope in the midst of the judgment of Israel. And then, of course, you know, God's defeat of his enemies in the battle of Gog and Magog um, in the chapters after that. And then God's blessing that's going to come to all of creation in the end times in the latter chapters. So those are great resources. So check those out. I did have uh, one specific question um, from one of our most faithful followers, Rebecca, um, in her last email and she actually recommended the Bama podcast so um, this is Marty Solomon and uh, what's his name uh, Brent Billings yeah yeah so these two guys started this podcast oh man it's been a few years now um, but it is it is kind of like a, a deconstructionist podcast for American evangelicals uh, Marty Solomon kind of went through a deconstruction of trying to understand the scriptures and then finding insight in Israel by reading the Jewish text through Jewish eyes. And so like we try to do that already. Um, we're very committed to like immediate, obviously immediate context, which is literary and which is Hebrew and which is set in the story of Israel. And so that's Jewish um, in, by its very nature. And then the historical understanding of the Old Testament and then obviously the New Testament authors understanding of the old testament and they were all jews so like we we don't come like i don't come from a um strong bias of like an american denominational rendering or interpretation of of text but a lot of people do a lot of the people who are part of christ church were fundamentalist baptists or were catholic and so there's a long-standing kind of dogmatic understanding of the scriptures that are very western and roman um with a lot of like uh, presuppositions that are um, way more like Aristotelian than they are Jewish. And so Marty Solomon had this experience. And so he kind of went back and said, let's start a discipleship program that is like relational, that's centered on the word, and that, that is focused on the original context and understanding from a Jewish perspective. So I believe, if I remember correctly, Bema is uh, the word that describes the central, uh, slightly elevated podium on which the word is read in the synagogue. I believe that's the where the word comes from. I have no idea. But B-E-M-A is how you spell Bema if you're trying to look it up. Yes, thank you. And yeah. uh, Marty Solomon, I used to listen to the Bema podcast um, like right after COVID. I would just walk, take my kids for a walk, put them in the stroller. They were all young. Yep. And just walk around for like 40 minutes listening to Marty yep. and Brent. But um, Marty studied under uh, like several rabbis, and that's where he got a lot of his information. And it, one of the interesting things, even if you only listen to season one, you'll find out how Western you are, mm -hmm. because he, he really introduces Eastern thought, and it's like totally different. You don't know how Western you are until he explains Eastern thought to you, and you're like, oh, okay, there's a totally different way of looking at some things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even even our, our Western Christian holidays of Christmas and Easter are not, like they have no connection to the Eastern church. Like there was, these are these are late third fourth century additions to celebrate what are what are obvious like biblical realities the nativity and the birth of Christ that's true that happened that's in the Bible, and the resurrection obviously is a central focal point of the gospel story but we didn't celebrate them in the manner in which we celebrate them or the time in which we celebrate them those are those are Western additions so that that's from and that's not even getting into the Old Testament that's just you know things that are like very Western to us um, also like the the. Christian church has been heavily Romanized and a big part of the Roman Catholic influence leading up to the Reformation, which, you know, this all happened around the time of the founding of the United States. So like us as Americans, we're going back to the 1700s and even before that to the 1600s, many of the people who first populated, many of the Westerners who first populated the United States were, were um, Protestants who were fleeing the persecution of the Catholic Church or uh, the Church of England trying to get out from underneath of the authoritarianism and the dogmatism to be able to practice religion that was very word-based um, but was not associated with formal church and so they were seen as heretics and dangerous and rebellion and so like there was obviously a lot of political tension that that existed there as well and so really the story of america is one of like a search for truth but also like um america is essentially a land of ten thousand popes like in, in the, I mean, honestly, like in the United States, you, you can start a church and start a denomination and essentially start a cult. And it, it's if any people are willing to listen to you and follow you and they take on your teachings, they don't have to have any basis in reality. I mean, one of the strengths of being a Catholic 
is that at least there's an answer for everything that's been thought over centuries and held by millions of people. And even if it's wrong, at least everybody agrees that that's what we're doing. And in Western evangelicalism, especially in the post-denominational era where there's non-denominational churches like ours popping up everywhere, man, you can just get a smorgasbord of theology from people who are not trained, uh, who do not have a real rigorous understanding of the scriptures or the storyline of the scriptures. And so um, podcasts like Bema and like Bible Project, these are, these are faithful students of the scriptures, and they're doing a great job in presenting that um, at at it, not not an academic, intellectual, PhD level kind of a way, but in a very accessible and pop pop culture kind of level way. So, strongly encourage you to check check those out. I think you'll really benefit from them uh, as well, and and then you'll start to gain an understanding um, of, of apocalyptic literature. Um, Bema has got uh, a great podcast on Zechariah, which is some of the most dense apocalyptic literature in the Old Testament. Obviously, that genre kind of begins with. Um, some early chapters in Isaiah, and then of course Ezekiel. But Zechariah really is kind of like the hot spot of of apocalyptic in the Old Testament. So that's a very short but punchy podcast on apocalyptic. And then they have a series uh, on Revelation that's also really good. And they do a lot of this work too of tying Ezekiel and Revelation together. I also found a podcast um, that I'm starting to listen to uh, by Witness Lee. And this is from the 70s actually. And um, there's some stuff in there you can definitely ca- catch the um, the influence, the interpretive method, but just really, really beautiful text, deep text work that's being done and presented in a in an easy to to consume way. He does have a very strong Asian accent, so it can be a little hard to understand. But um, some great podcasts out Who there. Who is that? I don't know. Um, so there's a, there's a I believe Witness Lee is. Is obviously that's not his name. It's kind of like Watchman Nee era, oh, I love where Watchman a lot of, nee. lot of these um, kind of underground Asian Christian teachers were taking on pseudonyms, uh, and then when they come to the United States, amassing a following because of their you know studious nature and their uh, a skill in preaching the scriptures in their totality. The crazy testimonies. Oh man, and what they've seen and experienced. <laughs> yeah. So um, I believe uh, Witness Lee was teaching in the early 70s, 1970, 71. Um, and then in, uh, in 74, I believe he started teaching through every book of the Bible. And I, I think he passed away in the mid-90s, but I'm not exactly sure. I haven't done a lot of research. This is a new exposure for me, but I'm enjoying it. Okay, cool. So yeah, check those things out. And um, obviously we're reading a lot of, of Scripture. I am finding the audio version of that. I was I was awakened by... Noisy neighbors at a quarter to two this morning and had a terrible time falling back asleep until about four. But I got through a lot of Daniel (laughs) (laughs) on my back. Um, So anytime you have, you know, if you're in a drive or you're working out or you're going for a walk and you're by yourself or you're washing dishes or mowing the grass, pop the headphones in and and, um, take in some scripture that way. So um, Rebecca, her question or actually, I mean, it's more of a comment and I thought it would be helpful to, for us to talk to. And it is actually quite in line with the conversation we're having about getting the scripture right and having a coherent and cohesive interpreted method. So this is really helpful. Um, she writes about Ezekiel in chapter 3, verses 18 to 21, and again in chapter 33. Um, when, and she doesn't she doesn't reference it in the in the email, but this is the section where... God is basically saying to Ezekiel, you, you warn the people, if you, if you warn them, and they're not going to listen to you, but when you warn them and they don't listen to you, their blood's on their own head. But if you don't warn them and they don't listen to you, their blood is on your head. And so this is kind of heavy stuff toward Ezekiel, but this was presented to Rebecca when she was a teenager as like a motive for sharing her faith with others and like a warning that like their the blood of their unrepentance would be on her because she failed to preach the gospel, which is just manipulative and uh, just, that's just evil. Um, That's a really bad interpretive method, Um, but it's stereotypical, unfortunately, of a lot of religious environments where there's a heavy handedness and a manipulation and a lot of motivating that's based on either guilt or fear. Um, And so a lot of us have experienced various um, stages and degrees of this type of Bible teaching or application um, that's manipulative and and just evil. So, I actually grew. I, I uh, at one point in my life 
was being preached that that was being pre- not here obviously but uh i don't remember if it was like in my undergrad or during my uh time at embry riddle but like that was like the, you know they're like oh you need to go preach because of this and it's just like funny now that i look i think about it now and i'm like oh because jesus said you'd know my disciples by, by their love <laughs> for one another <laughs> like oh that's like pretty straightforward yeah and uh you know you can you do love people by sharing the gospel but like right. you know you, you shouldn't have to have the, the weight of their guilt on yep. your shoulders. And I've done that before. I remember being a young, fiery um, construction site preacher, and I would preach the gospel to somebody, and they'd be like, oh, okay, well, that's weird, and good for you if that's what you think. And then I'd be like, well, you heard it, and now it's on you. Like, you know, like I'm like he- same, just as heavy-handed, you know. like <laughs> Shake the dust off yeah, your exa- feet. Yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> so let's, well, let's talk about that because there is some, there's some connection. Um, the main connection in Ezekiel 3, I believe, is the command and the call for Ezekiel. And you're going to see this as a theme in all the prophets, right? So Isaiah or Isaiah has this encounter in the presence of God, and he then sees himself not as a righteous remnant among a rebellious people, but as a man of unclean lips. So in the presence of God, he becomes aware of his own guilt and his own inability and insufficiency to carry out the prophetic task. And then you get this this image of a hot coal, you know, burning his lips, purifying his lips, and then his commission to be a prophet. And then you're going to get the same thing for Jeremiah. Jeremiah ends up saying, like, um, your your word is like a fire shut up in my bones or in my belly. Like, I have to let it out. I can't not. And so there, in all of the uh, major prophets, there's going to be a component where there is like a mandate. A, a, it's not just a call. It's a mandate. Like, you are. this is what you are here for. And at great cost, right? So one of the things we saw in Ezekiel was God would regularly have him demonstrate in like um, theatrical form the the judgment that he was about to to proclaim. So you get, you know, he's at some point bound and laying on his side for a year every day, spending his whole day bound and eating food prepared over flaming dung, right? Like that, okay. Um, it's not like that was like a, thing he was told to say it was a thing he was told to do and demonstrate in fact he like argues with god like can i use cow dung because i don't want to be made unclean by human dung god said human dung god's like all right i'll concede you can use cow dung and so a year of his life spent bound eating off of um food cooked over human feces cow feces gross i mean ezekiel loses his wife and is told not to mourn so like this is a this is a lifestyle of suffering now that isn't to say that every follower of Jesus ought to live their life in the exact same way. The connect there's a there's a connection, there's continuity in one section and there's discontinuity in another. The discontinuity is that each of these are types of Messiah. They're anointed. They are set apart and um, consecrated to a purpose. And that's messianic. And all of the anointed Old Testament prophets, priests, kings, they go through a period of trying and suffering. And really, all of Israel goes through a period of trying and suffering, and this is this is Christological. The Christ is the servant of God who will demonstrate the love of God under the opposition of the enemy and in uh, vicarious substitution for the evil of the human race, namely Israel and then all the nations. And so, Christ does that and suffers vicariously for us through His death and triumphs over death and the resurrection. But everyone preceding Christ also lives a cruciform life, a life in which they are experienced suffering. Now, on the one hand, uh, we are called to receive Christ, not to be Christ. And so there's a difference between what we earn, fulfill, or mandated upon. To ours is the invitation to come and eat and buy without price and to receive and to receive God's steadfast love, his covenant promise to David. Like, there's a lot that we get. And so, like, Christ is our Christ. We are not our Christ. And so we do not suffer vicariously for others. We do not suffer vicariously for ourselves. We are not making atonement through our self-sacrifice. That is not a part of it at all. Total discontinuity. However, the continuity is if we're a follower of Jesus, we are called to take up our cross daily and die to ourself. We are called to suffer willingly for the good of other people. We are called in love to lay down our lives for others. This is the teaching of Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if someone forces you to go a mile, go too. If someone you know, takes your your coat, give them your shirt. Um, someone slaps you on the left cheek, turn give to them the right. Um, so there's a there's a there's a pacifism and a self-sacrifice that is impelled by following Christ that causes us to 
suffer the way that he did and and live our lives in accordance with his purpose no matter what the cost. And so that's where the continuity exists. And so it's manipulative to tell a teenage girl, if you don't warn everyone that you talk to that judgment is coming, then you're going to, their blood's going to be on you. That's manipulative and heavy-handed. And I think that's probably the kind of teaching that gets people shouting and bullhorns on the corner. The end is near, Jesus saves, repent or perish. Um, because that's what they believe. And so at least they're trying to get out from underneath of that. Um, and Or, you know, even like Jehovah's Witness, to be among the limited 144,000 that are going to be saved. And um, So these are these are highly authoritative, authoritarian and, and manipulative tactics. And I think something interesting to consider, last year I read um, this book by D. Brent Sandy called Plowshares and Pruning Hooks. Mm. It might be Pruning Hooks and Plowshares. But obviously the prophetical, the prophetic uh, connotation is there, but it was like, one of the he's a, a scholar. I've I actually read some of his other things, but one of the things that he really presented to me was that prophecy is centered around the revelation of God's heart. Right? It's not like predicting the future. That's like a part of it, right. but like the not main the thing part. is like, hey, what's in God's heart, and what's he trying to come out? Like, what what does he want to show us right now? So to be like, I think a prophet of Jeremiah's standing, of Isaiah's standing, of Ezekiel's standing, like for you to misrepresent God, right? would be like a huge travesty. So hence the imperative of like, don't mess it up. Like I need you to say everything that I ask you to say. I need you to do all the thing, the weird things that I ask you to do. Right. Uh, like so that God can appropriately communicate his heart. Right. So it's like, so like taking that into account and then, and then thinking about like the, the big commission now, like, right. Hey, did, you know, did the blood's on your hand? Like, oh, it's, it's on you. Ezekiel, if you don't do it, right. but like, I don't think that applies to all of us. Right. You know, that's just like, hey, God's trying to reveal His heart through Ezekiel. Like, I want you to properly represent me. Right. So, something interesting to consider. Also, like that's that's very insightful and also appropriate that we recognize that in the major prophets, especially, but throughout the scriptures, the bulk of the content is given to the message of Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah. And it's a message that there is judgment coming and the judgment is from God because of idolatry. That's the message of these books. There's always hope because God's plan is to overcome that idolatry by doing a miracle of heart change. But it's important to remember that while the prophets were prophesying, and this goes for the minor prophets also, that there were a multitude of voices who were misrepresenting God and telling people what they wanted to hear. They were telling the king what he wanted to hear. They were telling the people what they wanted to hear. And this pops up again and again through Jeremiah and Ezekiel, where there's opposition against Ezekiel. He's slapped in the face and thrown in a pit and left for dead or, you know, hunted down, um, death warrants. It's because there were so many prophets saying the wrong thing. And so you got one prophet who's saying the right thing and being rejected by everyone. Um, and them not listening because of that hardness of heart and God bringing obviously about that that judgment and then the purposes of God coming through that. So there really is a really, really, really important uh, role and it's a big deal for these these specific prophets to speak up on God's behalf to say the thing that God wants to say because no one else is doing it. There's a multitude of negative voices, untrue voices, false prophecy. And that's not unlike the world we live in today. The, the loudest and and most manifold voices are speaking untruths. I mean, if you don't tune yourself into the word of God and you don't lean in to understand it truthfully, you not only are you going to get the the um, kind of non-religious, well, they're religious even though they claim to be non-religious, voices who are pushing an ideology and a series of loves on you that are compelling to you to live your life in a certain way. And then you have this minor you know, minority reporting voice saying something different. Most most of us live in that world where we have 90% inundation of all of these thoughts, whether they come from us through comparison, uh, advertising, television. Um, I mean, the things that we learn, the, the fact that people learn about love and romance from romantic comedies or learn about sex from pornography or they're learning about uh, body image from, um, you know, models like that is the lie that's a total lie it's a controlling lie it's meant to destroy your sense of self-worth and extract from you all of your human resource for somebody else to have control and power over top of you it's satanic but that's what's mostly out there and not only that but in addition to that the enemy is working to undermine and to manipulate through false prophecy and so there's representative religious voices 
who put on a collar to look like they speak for God, and then they say the exact opposite thing of what God's actually saying. And so there's people who are led astray out of one set of lies and into a religious form of lies. And so, like, we need the truth. And the truth is Jesus. I mean, it's not complicated. It's simple. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. There's nothing else. So in as much as you are knowing Jesus and studying and following Jesus and aligning your um, desires with his highest calling and purpose, you're going you're gonna to benefit more and more and more. And the more you uh, accumulate for yourself voices who are helping you on that journey, authors and speakers and music, and it's Jesus-centered and it's true and it's leading you into the right kind of loves and the right kinds of thinking, this is where human flourishing is going to exist. But it, that's not the world we live in. I mean, we're, we're swimming in a sea of, of untruth. And if we don't, you know, even for me, like I'm not, I've, I got off social media because, I mean, it was bad for me. It was not good for me personally. I was a number of reasons why I got off social media, but it was amazing to me how I didn't realize just the, the constant scrolling and seeing a false intimacy, feeling connected to people because I could see their life in a set of stills and I don't know them and I don't have a relationship with them. And it was very objectifying to the relationship that I did have with people, we have this meet, this small interaction with them for a few seconds or minutes, every three, four, five months, but you're seeing all the stuff that's a part of their life, you don't have a relationship with that person. That's not true and that's not real. And and it's, it's, an, it's incredible how much we in our own psyches objectify people and compare ourselves to and by those people without even having a relationship with them. And that's like one of the byproducts of me getting off social media was actually being able to have like a finely tuned um, sense of how well do I know a person and what kind of conversations am I having with that person of asking questions and being aware of their you know their well-being and and recognizing a person I see six times a year is not my friend <laughs> like as much as you know I, I care about that person they're an acquaintance and I you know whatever like I have no animosity there's nothing nothing negative there but there's nothing of, of substance there either right? And so that's just one aspect of social media. And that doesn't include the monetization of your advertising and what your eyes see and what you click on and how you're being manipulated by what the next thing is that comes your direction and the news that you get and the news that you don't get and all this sorts of, of, of nonsense. And so like if you just plug yourself into the matrix and allow the influences to, to lead you, you will end up, like Paul says, we were, apart from Christ, led astray by various desires towards death. And that can happen to you even as a Christian. Now, the Spirit's in you. God is faithful. There will always be a voice on the inside of you. Any interaction you have with Scripture, any interaction you have in God's presence, any service you're in where God's Word is read or preached, there's going to be a, a, a contrary voice, and God is going to be faithful, and He is going to lead you. But um, it's it's meaningful, and this is why my challenge is, like, to turn your phone off and open your open your Bible and read the Bible a lot more than you ever thought you would or ever cared to and and turn the television off and don't go to the movies and just be real selective about the things that you choose to put into your mind. And I thought, I feel a little um, fundamentalist saying that because I grew up in a in a home where you know we weren't allowed to watch the Smurfs or Pee Wee Herman because it was satanic and evil and and there's the good and the bad and the and the the um, the insulating factor was there but the principle behind that that's actually valuable is like you get out what you put in. And so you have to like have a frank conversation with yourself am i putting in do i am, am i pleased with what's coming out of my life and is it in connection to what i'm putting in and that can be your diet and that can be your habits and that can be all sorts of different things but it's got to it's got to center on jesus so we need a jesus centered hermeneutic interpretive method and we need a jesus focused life that tunes our ears to hear his prophetic voice yeah, and one thing I think is that your time is valuable, whether you acknowledge that or not. You could spend every night watching two-hour movies, yep. or you could watch a half a movie and watch, I mean, read the Bible, or right. you could watch read the whole Bible. I don't know. Right. But like, it, until you take like an inventory about like, how am I spending my time? You're like, wow, I actually don't make time for God. Right. Or like, you know, or like, you know, I know people that wake up early in the morning just to spend time with the Lord. And I wasn't there for a season, but uh, the current season does not allow me right now. So, <laughs> so let's not want to be a total zombie, but, um, but yeah, it's just so important to like, see how am I stewarding my time? Right? Like, you know, God gives you your breath and you know, how are you interacting with him? Are you really accountably spending time with God or not? Yeah. Like, you know, your one Bible verse of the day, right. 
did that come from your half hour of quiet time in the morning? Right. You know, I don't know. Yeah. So, so we're going on a rabbit trail, but I like where it's taking us. So let's chase that down a little further. Um, time is your most valuable resource. Uh, you will, you only have, we all have the same amount of time. We do not all utilize that time with the same level of efficiency and we're not all given the same level of capacity. So there are people who are much smarter than me, much more uh, industrious or capable. I am accountable for what God has entrusted to me in terms of capacity, but we all have the exact same amount of time, right? So it really comes down to what you choose to do with your time. And that really is a, a big deal. Like, how are you going to choose to live your life? And this comes, to, I mean, this is as practical as how many hours are you going to work? Uh, how much money are you going to, are you going to commit yourself to make? How many friends are you going to have? How many kids are you going to have? What's going to be your investment of time? How are you going to, how are you going to shape your life and balance it around your priorities? And if you don't do this on purpose, it will happen to you and you will feel like a passenger on a train of your life that you are not in control of where its its destination is. And you don't want to live that way, right? And so taking an inventory to say, I am going to, and you're going to, there are sacrifices that have to be made. I, I have had more opportunities to be more quote unquote successful in both non-church world through courses of, of uh, income that would have made me much wealthier, or even, for instance, to not have as many children as we have, or to not have a wife that, that homeschools our children and could have a whole other income for our house. Those are, those are decisions that we have made based on priorities, based on how we want to live our lives in each season, based on the limitations of our time and capacity. So these are hard decisions to make. But like this is the essence of discipleship. Jesus said, count the cost. You've got to know that this is, you got to go all in if you're going to be a follower of Jesus. He said, Jesus said some pretty harsh sounding things to those who professed a desire to follow him, but would not prioritize him. Jesus said, a man said, let me bury my father. And it wasn't because his father was dead and his funeral was on Thursday. He was saying, let me live out and honor my father. And when he dies and I am the new patriarch of our family, then I will follow you. Jesus said, nope, like you leave the dead to bury the dead. You, you are called to new life. And so walk into life, no matter what that costs you. So many things like this, Jesus said, and they are hard decisions to make, but they're the ones that shape the course of your life. Where do you want to be in a year? How much deeper do you want to know the Lord in a year? What, what, um, what addictions do you want to overcome in a year? What, um, what new patterns do you want to establish in the next year, two years, five years, 10 years? What do you want your children to be saying about you to their therapist in 15 years? What do you want the, the eulogy at your funeral to sound like? You know, obviously that's all the way out there at the end. But like, these are the things that our, our life course makes, which brings me to one of the biggest challenges that I personally faced in coming to this conclusion. And that is, and I, I think this is, um, well, that is compartmentalism. I think men are particularly um, susceptible to this because men in general are like waffles and women in general are like spaghetti. And so men, we tend to have a little box for everything. And so we have a box for relationships and we have a box for hobby and we have a box for work and we have a box for stress and we have a box for leisure and we have a box for sleep and we, have a, we just have a box for everything. And it's possible for us men to only be in one box at a time and so we're not mindful of any of the other boxes, which ladies, this is, is helpful in understanding how men can do the things that they do. You, 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 sometimes you ladies are thinking like, how could you possibly do this? Knowing this, how could you do this? And it's because he wasn't knowing this for five minutes, he was in this box. And so men are particularly um, susceptible to compartmentalization. So women also can compartmentalize, but they tend to compartmentalize less because in the way that God has designed the, the female psyche, and heart is, is very connected. Your your relationship with your husband is connected to your children, is connected to your work, is connected to your sleep, is connected to your hobbies, is connected to your disappointments. All of those things are connected. And so you can very quickly move from one, um, let's say, box to another. And there are, you never are really completely disconnected from any of them. And this is hard for us as men to understand when our wife is trying to tell us nothing is wrong and there's obviously something wrong. 
And what she means is there's nothing wrong with this situation right now. I'm actually very stressed out about this thing that has nothing to do with what we're actually talking about, but it's influencing the way that I feel right now in this moment. And a thing you said that had nothing to do with that made me think of that and reminded me of that or a thing you did or failed to do is the thing that brought me back to that particular place of pain. And men are like, okay, can you just call me when you're done and then we'll talk about it? Or could we talk about it without all the emotion or passion? No, actually, she can't. So men and women are obviously different, but... We all compartmentalize, and one of the ways we compartmentalize, both as men and women, is we tend to compartmentalize our spirituality or our relationship with God as a bullet among the bullets that make us us. And so at the identity level, we see ourselves as a man or a woman, boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, mother, father, employee, business owner, student. We have these identity markers, and then one of those ends up being Christian or spirituality or something that connects you to God. And so we end up living our lives trying to balance all of the components of our sense of self-identity. And so we have our hours we spend at work and we spend have our hours we spend in education and we have our hours we spend in community and we have our hours we spend in leisure and we enter into each of these categories functioning as that identity, but we oftentimes don't cross those identities. And so you may find yourself acting differently around the people you work with or go to school with than you do with the people you go to church with. And you wonder why that is. Maybe you feel a little bit of hypocrisy. Maybe you find yourself having a hard time, quote unquote, sharing your faith because that's not something you're comfortable talking about with this particular set of people. So my question for you is, why might that be? And this is coming back to Rebecca's question from Ezekiel. I don't want to put a heavy-handed manipulative pressure on you Um, by wrongly taking some passage of scripture and leveraging it against you to change your behavior. But I do want to say to you that to be a Christian is to be made new and completely new and to identify oneself in the most intimate and comprehensive way that you can humanly imagine with God himself through Christ, the eternal son of God. And so if you are a Christian, there is not a time you are not a Christian. And so this is one of the reasons I think men can um, put up with categories of lust and pornography for so long is that they move out of their Christian box and they move into this this, uh, secret box that's kept in the attic and they don't think about being a father. They don't think about being a husband. They don't think about being a Christian. They only think about the appetite that this particular um, activity is appealing to them. And then when they stop, they shut the lid on the box and they hide it back in the attic and they go back to life like it never happened. And so for many of these things, and this can happen for overeating, this can happen for alcohol and drug addiction, this can happen for relationships you know you shouldn't be in. And so you're at church as a single on a Sunday morning, but on Thursday night or a Friday night, you're out with a person you know you should not be in a relationship with, being tempted to do things you know you should not do and you keep doing it. Why is it? There isn't a holistic comprehensive sense of self you have compartmentalized your faith into one of the components of you and that is not a relationship with God and this is something that is um, a little bit of an epidemic in 21st century Christianity where you're you're asked on a forum what's your gender what's your ethnicity what's your religious affiliation and you think about those things as distinct from one another and they are not they are not and now we're living in a world where those categories are being manipulated and combined and blurred and muddied to the point where your relationship with God becomes diluted and kind of like oil and water pushed out of the conversation altogether. And now if you don't align yourself with the people that you are in a relationship with, be it work or school or community or whatever, now your your commitment to God and any of the things that you believe is now kind of like a secret part of your spiritual life and it doesn't really mix at all into the world and so that's why you have a hard time quote unquote sharing your faith um, it's the same part same reason you may have a hard time forgiving people because you're trying to put on forgiveness as an activity when in fact you're called to be an expression of forgiveness having been forgiven by God you're a walking you are you are walking forgiveness you're experiencing the daily experience of I am fully restored to God regardless of what I have done, which makes you a forgiving person. You're not looking for power to forgive. You are a forgiving person because you are a forgiven person. You are a loving person because you are a loved 
person. You are a generous person because you have received generosity. And so you don't have to try to do things that are commands from Christ because you're called to abide with him and in him, which makes his commands easy because they're an expression of your whole self. And this is what the world needs. The world doesn't need a you who overcomes your reluctance to share your Christianity or your Christian faith and all of the obstacles to that. The world needs you to be a whole person. In fact, as an evangelism strategy, the the best thing you can possibly do is be whole and be happy. Be a happy husband. Be a happy wife. Be a happy mother. Be a happy father. Rejoice in the things that God has called you to do. You know, I, I talked just moments ago about the sacrifices that we have made because of our priorities, but I am as happy as I could possibly be because of those priorities. More money would not make me happier. A nicer pickup truck would not make me happier. Having a job that paid me twice as much that wasn't doing what God put me here to do would make me frustrated with extra zeros in the bank. I'm happy because I know exactly who I am and whose I am, and I'm living my life as closely as possible to those priorities, and I'm trying to do that in my relationships as well. And so this is going to make you less offended, less timid, less bitter, less resentful, less frustrated. It's going to make you more whole. And so again, all of these come back to what? They come back to your relationship with Jesus. And that relationship is mediated to us by the scriptures, by the Holy Spirit, in community, through the sacraments. And so you have to immerse your entire self into this experience, into this mystical union with Christ that obliterates your compartments and makes you a whole person able to be who God made you to be in each of the environments that you find yourself in. And this is going to lead to consistency. This is going to lead to um, authenticity. This is going to break down hypocrisy. This is going to allow you to walk in vulnerability. This is going to let you be genuine. This is going to empower you to do things that have seemed too hard for you in the past. And all of these things are by living a life that is centered on who God made you to be. I was not called to be Ezekiel. I was called to be Jesse Jarvis. And that's who I'm going to be. No matter what the cost is, no matter what the cost is, and so there, the world, we have this written, we, we, we put this up on the wall in our kids' worship space at the church. The world needs who you were made to be. And the center of that is the word made. There's a maker who put you here on purpose, and you were made for him, by him, to walk with him, and he wants your whole self. And so you also find yourself, as you walk with God this way, and as you walk in this authenticity and wholeness, which is what Jesus died to give you, by the way. It was wholeness. It was oneness. Um, most of the things in my life that I have overcome in terms of like um, sins and sin patterns and things that I continue to do even though I didn't want to do them, they came from the fact that I had um, a multiplicity of desire. I had two-heartedness. I had a desire to do this thing over here, and I had this desire to do this thing over here. And instead of becoming whole, I managed those. And so I tried really hard to feed, you know, the whole, you know, there's a, there's a black wolf and a white wolf in your soul and which one wins the fight between them is the one you feed. This is the mentality that I brought to my relationship with God. And so it really became on me. But I essentially for years kept alive two opposing desires. And the, it's not a matter of feeding the one and starving out the other. It's a matter of every day killing the one and living to the other one. And this is what the scriptures speak in the New Testament about the old man and the new man and this this weight of sin that's attached to you, but you don't live according to it. And you walk not according to the flesh and these desires that are on the inside of you. You can acknowledge them because they're there, but you're walking according to the spirit. And so it requires a daily dependence upon the Lord, a daily awareness and and, uh, diet of the scriptures, uh, a prayer life that's, that's fueled by the power of the Holy Spirit. And what it leads to in your relationship with the Lord is a oneness that those things may still be present, but they have no strength, no power over you. And so you're, you're walking around with that part of you that, that's the old you, is your testimony, but it's about as alive as your shadow. It goes everywhere you go, but it's flat and it's dark and it doesn't lead you around anymore. And so I think this is something that a lot of people need. And I know that our conversation on Ezekiel wasn't intended to bring us to this particular monologue, uh, but I think it's a valuable one. And we'd love your feedback also. I think we could go back to the evangelism piece, like the the other side of the same coin, the pragmatic approach is that you got to flex those muscles. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like all of that stuff that you said is so true. And and the best way that you can love somebody else, if you actually have a relationship with Jesus and you understand the value of that is to give that 
opportunity to somebody else. Right. Tell them how you've been made whole. Yep. Tell them what Jesus has done for you, right? That's like, we see that all throughout scripture is like the, the power of testimony of what, what God's done. You see it all throughout the Old Testament. They made monuments. They made all kinds of things to help them remember who God was, mm-hmm. who God is, mm-hmm. and what he, what he had done for them. And so I think we, as a culture, shy away from evangelism. Right. We're like, eh, you're like, oh, it's, it, I'm not good at it, A, because I've never tried it, right. B, because I, I don't want to try it. Right. You know, it's scary. Yep. But like the more you flex those muscles, because that, you know, my, you'll know my disciples by their love. And I think one of the best ways to love people is to share Jesus with them. Right. Like, hey, you're lost and you need to get on track with Jesus because right. that's the only way yep. you're going to be made whole. Yeah. So it's like pragmatically start flexing those yep. muscles, those yep. evangelistic muscles you've got. Yeah. And, and one of the, the, easiest ways that that ends up happening and this is just like you know atrophy your muscles will atrophy you just sit all the time you will literally decompose and so you have to stay active and if you want to actually grow you have to engage in a regimen of exercise right so you can stay healthy and just stay the same just by being active at a minimum level obviously over time that's going to decline but or you can you can push yourself stretch yourself to grow and this is true in any um, type of field or endeavor and spiritually, this is this is also what Bill's saying. It's totally true. You start to do that. And what you will find is if you exercise your wholeness of heart and your oneness with God and your identity that's that's based in your relationship with him. So you are who he says you are. You can do the things he says you can do. I Now you have this motive. I will attempt the things that my mind is telling me I can't do or my past is telling me I'm unable to do or I fear that it won't work. But no, this is who God says I am, and so I'm going to be this. That is a muscle that will grow. And as you use it, what you will find is I have like some very important relationships in my life. My relationship with Tiffany, my wife of 21 years, is the deepest human relationship that I have. And I talk about her all the time. And I have no problem talking about her. There's the things that I love about her. There's the time that we spend together. I never have to like work up the energy to tell tell people about my wife or my kids. I'm proud of my kids. I love my kids. They blow me away with the things they do and say. And I just absolutely love them. I love spending time with them. And I'm happy to talk about them with anybody. But if you don't have an integration of a relationship with Jesus where he's at the center of your life, then there really isn't a whole lot to talk about except an external put on or a set of beliefs that you intellectually ascend to. And that's not anything compelling. Nobody's going to care what you happen to think happened 2,000 years ago. But nobody cares. That's not, you, you share, I mean, share your faith. If that's what you think sharing your faith is, then you're just inviting people to church on Easter and that's it. But your faith is your relationship with God that's vibrant and alive. What has God done in your life recently? What did God say to you this morning? What is he working out in your life? What is he changing your perspe- perception in? How did, he, how did he answer your prayers? What are the things you're asking him for? Like right now, those things should be at the top of your tongue. And if they are because of that oneness, when you encounter other Christians, you're going to have this immediate experience of fellowship because the nature of your relationship centers on a mutual relationship, Jesus, and you have an immediate connection, right? And if you have a conversation with an unbeliever, then you have evangelism, whether you're thinking it's evangelism or not. Are you presenting to the world a happy, fulfilled, like hope-infused, love-saturated, and joy-filled life and experience that's so like um, attractive to the people that you're around that they go, man, why are you so happy? Why are you so hopeful? Why are you, do you have so much generosity and love towards other people? Are you just ready to tell them the reason? And the reason is I've been utterly transformed from this self-centered black hole of a human who tried to use everything that God had entrusted to my care to get attention and wealth and prosperity and hedonism for myself. And I was saved radically and drastically through the self-sacrifice of another. And my spirit came to life and I began to see the world in a way I never saw it before. And now I just want to love like God loves me. And that's where this came from. And he gave me a supernatural joy and a purpose. And I'm living the life that I never would have chosen for myself. And it's the most fulfilling thing I can imagine, even with the pain, even with the suffering, even with the loss. It's the best thing ever. And you'll, you'll find the response is more like the woman at the well. How do I get this water? <laughs> like, what? Yeah, because this is a real thing. And leading people into that is where effective evangelism actually comes from. And so motivating people by the blood of their hearers being on their head if they don't say something is just dark and manipulative and uh, uh, just a destructive use of the scriptures. But seeing the story of Ezekiel in exile 
by the river of Kibar in Chaldea at the starting point of God's purpose and plan. And his eyes are opened on the day that he ought to have been going into the temple as a mature priest to begin his priestly ministry from 30 to 50. And instead, he's sitting in tears. And that's the moment when the heavens are opened. And what does he see? The presence of God, not in the temple in Jerusalem where there's idolatry, but at a river in Babylon. And this is where he's commissioned. Go and share my heart with my people. And where is this going to go? It's going to go through judgment. It's going to go through wrath because God is just and idolatry is evil and human evil will not be overlooked. But there's a message for everyone who would receive it that there is a stream of life that can flow not only to you, but can start in you. And this is the hope of Ezekiel. This is the hope of Revelation. And Jesus is that source of life. And so if you know him even a little, and if he's true and real to you, then let your loves and let your habits and let your desires reflect that. And sometimes that's going to mean getting off social media, taking a break from watching television, working less hours, finding ways to get more scripture, more fellowship, more sermons, more podcasts, um, more prayer time, expressing a hunger for more of God's Holy Spirit. And as you encounter him and pursue that relationship, it will grow and you will find what I have found. And that is the, the, the multiplicity of heart that happens for many of us and the compartmentalization of who we are to whom and when begins to be unified. And you become the person that God made you to be. And all of those things that you thought impossible to overcome are nothing more than a flat shadow that you're aware of, but that does not drive you or control you. And that's the oneness that Ezekiel experienced, and you have your own journey that God's calling you on. And so I think that's a good place to, to leave it. That was a beautiful podcast. Enjoyed that conversation. So if you're still reading the scriptures in six months, um, we'd love to hear from you. Send your questions. And it really, you know what? It doesn't even matter when they're from. So if you have old questions, you didn't send them because we moved on, don't worry about it. So send us your questions. Uh, we're going to keep moving at this pace because we committed to doing it. And uh, we're going to wrap this thing up in the 183 days that we plan to. Uh, but we love your questions um, and feedback. So you can send an email, jesse at joinwithjesus. And uh, we'd love to make it a part of next week's broadcast. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this week's deep dive into the scriptures. Our goal is to help you know Jesus better so that you can implement your identity in Christ, engage in your unique purpose and calling, and create community around your relationship with Jesus. For more content like this and opportunities to connect with us in person, find us online at joinwithjesus.org.